last week, uh, Psalm 1, uh, if you remember, uh, it seems like a lifetime ago, but we had that image, a picture of the blessed life, what it was to be a blessed person, and, uh, to dwell it down, to drill it down into one sentence. The blessed person is one who knows the Lord, loves the Lord, and by God's word or law in the Psalms image, studies it and lives for the Lord. The blessed one is like a tree, we are told, planted, rooted deep near the streams of living water whose leaves never go, never rot in that sense. They're always green. Uh, Psalm 2 seems quite different, but actually they're almost, they're to be read together. They come almost as a pair, playing off one another because we're still thinking about the blessed person. Psalm 2 finishes, blessed are all who take refuge in him. We're to think back to what it is to be blessed. As Psalm 2 starts, if we were reading in the original language, we would be blown away by the parallels when we read the words as the questions are asked. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? There, plot, the same word used as in Psalm 1, but the difference, the difference is so strong. In Psalm 1, meditate day and night on the law of the Lord. On Psalm 2, plot, it's that same image, two contrasting pictures, one of rebellion and sin against God. Uh, Psalm 2 is an exquisite picture of this great unfolding drama between the world and the assurance of God's reigning king. And it's a narrative that pushes us into this great thinking about who God is and what it means to trust him. And more than that, quite simply, why we should trust him. What's the answer? Because he is sovereign. Or, or to say it another way, because God is in control. There is nothing that faces him. There is nothing that surprises him. The Lord reigns and will reign continually. And so we trust him through every season. Verses 1 to 3, we see that great rebellion against God. It opens with the nations defiant. A picture almost, I suppose, the scene, sadly, in France, the, the chaos, uh, the disorder, the unease that we see as we look at those pictures. Except in this sense, it's not just a little uh, riot on a street. It is the world uproaring and controlling against God. They are conspiring against their leader, we're told. The earthly rulers plot in vain against the Lord and his anointed. Why do the nations conspire? Why do the people plot? The psalmist asks. And notice that final clause, in vain. He knows it's pointless. But yet they do. It's a universal rebellion. And for us today, it's a simple picture. What is before us is sin. Our sin, in the great sense of all the nations of the world, but when we drill down to the individual, it is, ah, we are the rebel. We are the ones who plot in vain against the authority of God, even perhaps when we don't think we are, by 
striving to do things our way, by striving uh, to do things another way as opposed to God, by thinking uh, that in the context perhaps of his kingdom, that we can choose the rules that we might like, that we can choose the things that we might want to do. But if God is our ruler, then it's his way and his way alone. We must live as Christ lived. We must love as Christ loved. We must go as Christ went. Anything else, anything else is this here. Rebellion and plotting against the Lord. It's a desire to break free from God's rule. We see it in every passage of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, as time and time and time again, we think we know better. God carries the Israelites out of the oppression of Egypt and the great exodus. But a few moments after they have seen the greatest acts of God visible before them, what do they do? They make a golden calf to worship because they're afraid. Peter and the disciples see and recognize Christ as the Messiah. And what is it that the Lord says to him? But a few moments later, get behind me, Satan. Because we are the great rebels. Time and time again, we will try our way before God's way because we think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Derek Kindler here writes, the wish to dispose of God is not the first sin, but in its head, but is the head and front of all subsequent and following sins in our lives. And yet, the psalmist is clear here. We see the audacity of the earthly rulers and the nations, how almost arrogantly competent they are. We see the nature and rebellion of what sin is, choosing something other than God, choosing to love another way other than God's way, choosing to live in ways contrary to God's words and the universal dimension of it. No one is spurred here. All the nations are in uproar. There is not a Christian nation sort of set aside in the psalm or, a, or the Jewish people. All the nations rebel, we are told. They think to themselves, let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. We will be free and we can do it our way. And what are we told that God is doing in the heavens as he watches the one enthroned in heaven is not worried. No. Is he fearful of what might happen? No. We're told he laughs. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. And the word used here, it's not just a sort of chuckle. It's a deep bellow. It's one of those jokes that get told and you can't stop yourself laughing. God looks at all that is going on before him and laughs because it's not a contest. God is in control. 
he laughs and he scoffs at them as in he moves to rebuke them as he begins to work. The image here of Zion for us, the picture of God's holy hill in the sense, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill, in verse 6, is a, a sort of grounding of the earthly rule of the, the heavenly God, the great and powerful Lord, in one person, in one place. This psalm isn't just talking about one of our King David or one of the Davidic kings that follow him. It's pointing to something more, a great king, a future king who will rule over all things and all people. Who is that? It's the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are looking forward to the king who is to come. And so as we read these verses, we know who we're reading about. And we see and learn something of who Jesus is here. This great rebellion, the nations in uproar, the world seemingly in chaos. And God is laughing at the efforts of man to do what he wants to do. And is confident still in his own efforts. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. The Lord will deal with sin. He will deal with our sin. He will deal with the stubbornness of our hearts in terms of living in his ways. He sees all things. He knows all things. How we love one another. How we will go into the world and love those that God has called us all or might not because we choose another way. And he will deal with it at one day. But in this great picture of chaos and turbulence, we're told the king will be seated. And what will the king do? Verse 7. I will proclaim the decrees of the Lord. The king recounts the great divine decree here. There's strong echoes of the covenant of God. That which brought God together with his people in Second Samuel 7 under King David. If you will obey my commandments, I will put on the throne one always from the line of David. But, the Lord warned, if you sin and rebel from me, the sonship here described we're looking for, this eternal king, verses 7, 8, and 9, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make an inheritance of the nations for you. The ends of the earth will be your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. And you will dash them to pieces like pottery. David here, as he writes, as he sings, is painting a picture of one king. Not a human king who might be pulled into sin or pulled into rebellion. Not another nation's ruler, but one king who will rule with fairness and justice and is ruling today. Jesus. The kingship, the sonship has reached its fulfillment in the life and work and rule of Jesus, who is the last of the D David's kings. 
and he is the eternal one. His universal rule is already begun and will one day be fulfilled. John Golden Gate, an Old Testament scholar, sort of sums it up nicely as he writes, the promise to the David's kings now turns out to point to something greater, the rule of God's anointed one, the Messiah who was crowned and enthroned on the cross. There will be a victory, we're told. You will rule them with iron scepter, as in it will not be defeated, and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. The nations might be in uproar and chaos. People might be plotting in vain. They might think of themselves as powerful. But to you, to this future king to come, what does the psalmist say? They're like clay pots that with the knock of your hand will shatter. That is the power we see here. And that's a call for wisdom in those final uh, three verses, verses 10 to 12. Therefore, you kings, the psalmist has pointed uh, uh, and spoken the singular of a king who is to come, uh, of a great and sovereign king who laughs at at the, the foolishness of the world, at their arrogance against God. And now notice the change here. Verse 10, therefore, you kings, the psalmist has returned to address those in rebellion. He has asked the question of them, why do the peoples plot in vain? And now he answers them with an answer they do not want to hear. Therefore, you kings, be wise. And what is wisdom? Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit at the seat of mockers, those opposed to God. And what is Psalm 2, this great picture of rebellion? It is the picture of the mockers, the world mocking the Lord in great rebellion. So to be wise for us this morning, to be wise it's simple. It's to be the one who does not associate with these things, but delights in the law of the Lord, and on it meditates day and night, like a tree planted by the streams of living water. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. And what is their warning? Not to rebel, but rather to serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling, uh, to kiss the Son, as in to draw close to the one who has been seated on the holy hill, Jesus, so that he will be at peace with you. For his wrath can flare up for a moment, as in one day he will deal with the mess that is our world, the chaos that we see, the sin that so easily entangles and challenges and changes everything. But blessed are those who take refuge in him. As Psalm 1 finished, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. Psalm 2 finishes with the same assurance. Blessed are those who take their refuge in him. 
And so for us, with the picture of rebellion and sin so easily displayed, and yet it's talking in the great sense of nations, but actually the challenge is for us. Are we those who have heeded the warning? Do we recognize the King of Kings? Are we listening to the psalmist as he calls and says, serve the Lord with fear? Or are we serving the Lord with selfishness? How are we approaching the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? And how is it displayed in our living, in our loving and serving of one another, in our gathering together? All of these things point to where our heart is and how we see the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and his rule in our lives. Anything other than full obedience is still rebellion. It doesn't mean it's meant to be perfect. It doesn't mean that it's meant to be without effort or with ease. But if we are Christ's citizens, then we will strive with the help of the Holy Spirit to live as the King lived, which is verse 11 and 12 here, to serve him with fear, reverence, looking to God in respect, and more than that, rejoice in him. Because he is what we've been longing for. As we navigate our lives in a world that is often in revolt against God, as we gather together, we are meant to be as one. Because we are under the assurance of God's reign through his anointed King Jesus. The psalm should inspire us not just to see God as in control and sovereign in that great sense of the word, excuse me, but more than that, to be at ease and rest in the world with all the chaos that might go on in our lives that we can't explain, sickness and difficult relationships, trouble at home or in work, all of those things happening. We trust that God who loves us and knows us is at work in our lives for and doing something good. And more than that, we live as he has called us to live so that as we go out into the world that others too might see and might come to know the joy and privilege of Christ. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But the question that we have to wrestle with is, is he our king? My king? And um, does my life and my living and my loving of everyone display it? Or am I still bowing to another's throne? Because one day he will come and we will answer for what is our living for him. Let us pray. Lord, in a world of chaos and uproar, where every time we turn on the news, there seems to be another global situation, another mess from leaders who uh, seem to seek only themselves, where the nations are constantly in uproar, we are thankful that you are still seated on your throne. 
and that you are ruling in the great sense of the word and working all things to your way and to your will. But also, Lord, that you're working in the smallest sense, in our lives, in our place, and in the same rule that we trust over all things, we trust in our lives that Christ is seated on the throne and is good and is at work in us and through us by his Holy Spirit. So in the chaos of the world, Lord, we pray that we might trust you more and see more of your goodness and rule and reign in our lives. And in our lives, Lord, we might we pray that by your Spirit that you might convict in us those acts of rebellion that we refuse to give to you. And that you might remove them from us and make us blessed and rooted people who are like trees planted by living water, fruitful in season with green leaves all of our lives, displaying your love and faithfulness by how we love one another all in this family of faith, by how we serve the community around us, and by how we proclaim the greatness of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Bless us this day, Lord, we pray, not for our sake, but for yours, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.